0: All right, let's give it a whirl here. Duh. Oregon Trail, let's fire it up. Floppy disk, everyone else has died. I'm gonna make this work. All right, let's go. All right, okay, Independence, let's get started. That's right, get to the river. See if I get to the river, or game on. Okay, what, uh, okay, let's, yeah, we'll choose two. There we go, perfect. Perfect, okay, not too much trouble. Yeah, overcame that thief. Here we go, this is good. All right, now. This is kind of getting really tiresome. Okay, all right, let's just see. Uh, Cheat code, cheat code, cheat code. Woo, yeah, let's go, boom. Yes, all right. Woo, yes, yes, yes. Up, 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 down, A, B, A, B, A, B, start. Let's go. Woo, woo. Yes, people, I lived. I lived, finally. No one else but me. I did it. I lived. I lived, which is... um, What I'm saying a lot now as I'm teaching my three daughters how to drive, (laughs) I get out of the car, I'm like, I lived, you lived, we all lived, everyone else around us lived. Uh, Driving, driving instruction with three adolescent teenage daughters, not easy, not easy. Uh, There's a few things uh, about that one, and this has been well documented, which is that um, many within this generation of young drivers, they don't want to drive they just, they're just not motivated like, like you and I. But secondly, here's the thing I'm finding. I'm finding that um, at least our children have never looked out a car window in their life. <laughs> they grew up looking up there. What's up there? The DVD screen. No longer, we don't need that. Why? Because there are things right here right? So when you place their hands on the wheel, they have no idea where they are on the planet. Uh, And then, you know, the second thing is, and this is more our bad as parents, we're a bit helicopter-ish, where, you know, Our daughters just didn't ride their bikes like I grew up riding my bike. So I would just, at their, you know, at that young age, I'd go all across town, which meant that I learned just the general flow of traffic, general rules, things like that. Like, you know, it's like our our girls just didn't really learn those things, like the, the, the flow of things. But here's maybe the biggest challenge to driving instruction. It's my and our own unconscious competence, which means... We don't really even think about driving. It's just so second nature and second hand. So you don't think about the things that you need to train said young daughters in learning how to drive, such as lane changing, lane changing. Didn't think about that one in the parking lot until we were on 69 Highway, and I say to one of them, all right, well, let's just go from the, uh, from the fast lane, let's get over, Just I want you to just cha- change lanes, merge into the lane to your right. She goes, Okay. Center divider, boom! Very, very close. I'm gonna tell you, I lived, I lived. It was amazing. It was amazing. But uh, here's another thing: unconscious competence. I, I just didn't think to explain after months of instruction that when a car in front of you, when lights like, when when lights in the car in front of you like turn on, that those are brake lights. I just didn't, I didn't think to explain that. So it's like, honey, did you know when a car lights up from behind what that is? She goes, I have no idea, Dad, right? Or <laughs> I could make this the whole sermon, by the way. <laughs> like the time I said to another daughter, okay, what I want you to do here, and I get a really calm, they, they call it kind of a scary calm voice. It sounds like this, okay. So now I'd like you to get over into your furthest left lane. That's kind of like I go to like super stoicism. I like Mr. Stoic, right? So what does she do? She pulls over into her furthest, furthest left lane, as in the lane of oncoming traffic. <laughs> so we, we get into a parking lot. We, we pull the car into park. I'm like, honey. Do you know what a double yellow line is? No, dad, I have no idea. You didn't learn that with the eight hours instruction that we paid hundreds of dollars for. No, dad, I had no idea. All they told me was to watch out for trains. That's that's all the learning (laughs) that they got. So we get out of every car moment saying... You lived, I lived, everyone around us lived. And when we turn to the Proverbs, there's a very poignant, pertinent little nugget here. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 24. The path of life leads upward for the prudent and to keep them from going down to the realm of the dead. I lived, I lived, I lived. And this is truly what we wanna say about our lives, by the way. That when we get to the end of our lives, that I lived it to the full, that I lived it to my absolute best that the qualitative nature of my life was that I pushed all the chips in, that I left it all on the field. In fact, when we look at this little proverb here, as we're culminating from the series, we've talked about, hey, be wise, not a fool. Hey, work hard, don't be a sluggard. Hey, don't live in isolation, have friends. Hey, uh, speak words that give life, don't tear down. And JJ last week, hey, who's at the center of your wagon wheel, oh family and household? All beautiful instruction that culminate really to this moment called life and death, as the Proverbs talk about it. Now. When they talk about life and death, it's less the, the event of birth and life, or life after death, actually, or even death as a singular event. What they're really talking about, the Proverbs, is a qualitative sense of life. And so, as Derek Kidner, a, a scholar and commentator, would write about when the Proverbs speak about life, and particularly the path of life or the way of life, it's a route that leads to, or is marked by, Ones being truly and fully alive. That's, that's what we're aspiring towards, to be fully alive as human beings. And when he talks about, the Proverbs do, when it talks about death, here's how Kidner would explain that. In fact, the whole Old Testament would say, when looking at the subject of death in depth, death is a whole realm, get this, in conflict with life rather than a single and a merely physical event, and the word death appears somewhere between 20 to 30 times in the form of Abaddon or refrain or the pit or shoal, Hades, things like that, but they all culminate to this qualitative sense of, are you fully alive right now, or do you feel dead inside, maybe stuck, maybe plateaued? Maybe a sense of living with with shame or guilt or just knowing there's there's more to what has been intended for you and for your life, and you've yet to just completely put that into play. So I want to ask you here in this room, between feeling a little dead inside and fully alive, where are you? I want to ask our online community, do you feel fully alive or a bit dead inside? When I ask Speedway or uh, the South Sanctuary, do you feel fully alive or a little bit dead inside? The Proverbs gives us a snapshot, a picture. And I just want to, by, by way of summary here today... I want to give us three observations about all this kind of choose your journey, the Oregon Trail, the the Proverbs, giving us wisdom for life, three things that we can kind of bring in summary. And the first one I've been talking about, which is the Proverbs inspires us towards our best life, towards our best life. And we're going to look at... Three to, three to four kind of categories here. We're gonna do it pretty quickly, but when we talk about that qualitative sense of life, let's look at uh, category number one. It's relationships. Whoever pursues, the proverb says, righteousness and love finds life, prosperity and honor. Now you might be going, well, where's the relationship part? Right there in the word righteousness. At its core, do you know what righteousness means? Both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, it means right relationship. That you are at, at ease and experiencing harmony with your most uh, and closest friends, in your marital covenant, in, with your coworkers. When you are in right relationship, you're experiencing righteousness, which will flow to right action. Because when we see all of life through the lens of relationship, when you don't want to harm or disrupt relationship, you will do the right thing to preserve, to grow, and to heal those relationships. That's the prosperity that the Proverbs are speaking towards. Here's the second category under what really is the best life relationship, yes, and mental wellness or well-being. Look at this Proverbs. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. I just love that phrase, a a heart at peace. We're living in a world where... We see a lot of bones rotting out, would you agree? <laughs> We've been talking a lot about the, the restlessness, the shaking, the rattling that we experience it. We see it in our youth. We see it in every tweet or social post. We see it in the polarization. There is this shaking that's going on. And that's, by the way, that's what I love about the unshakable journey that we're going on as a church. And perhaps you've heard by now, and if you haven't, over the next six weeks, we want to encourage you to get into an A2 community, an unshakable A2 community, and go on this journey. Because what you're going to find out is this this life that we're seeking, not just for ourselves, but for the flourishing of our city and around the world, is exactly this, right? Relationships, it's health and wellness. It's people who are living with their hearts at peace, And what do we get to do? We get to meet people at their place of pain. We get to put God's family around every family and every household in very specific and I would just say radical ways, and it is so exciting. And so I just wanna encourage you, like, buckle up this journey that we're on, that we're heading into after so much prayer and fasting and discernment. Man, there is a rightness about it, about what how the kingdom is gonna break in and just blow us away. And so jump into an A2 community, come back for the next six weeks on that when we talk about what is this life that is truly life, as the New Testament would say. Uh, It is relationship. It is uh, health and wellness. And then lastly, it's this combination of moral and spiritual. I wanna look at two here quickly. For those who find me, says God, find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me, look at this, harm themselves. All who hate me love death. Now that feels kind of harsh, doesn't it? Why would the author of Proverbs and why would God say this? Well, it just makes sense, doesn't it? If you and I have a maker that as the scriptures say, know every hair on on your head, might mean more to you than to me, but knows every day of your life that's been written in your book of life, knows you down to bone and marrow, wouldn't it just make sense that we would want to be in relationship and in alignment with our maker? Wouldn't it just make sense that you would want to have kind of the human manual for life by the one who wrote it? Wouldn't it just make sense that the one who knew you before the foundations of the world even began to seek him, to know him, and to let him tend to you? That just makes sense. And to resist that is doing harm to your very best life. Here's another one that uh, speaks to our relationship with others in a moral sense. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, sometimes called fountain of life or way or path of life. And the one who is wise saves lives. You see the moral responsibility that as we choose this best life, there is overflow. There is an intentional and deliberate way of caring for others around us. And that is the moral responsibility, that we live in a flourishing of relationship, that we have hearts that are at rest, and that rest and peace overflows to others, and that we're living from this place of moral and spiritual connectedness with God and with others. That is, as it says in the New Testament, the life that is truly life. That is, as Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is In heaven. That's this kind of best life that we're talking about. It's not, by the way, the be real life. Anybody familiar with the new app that's out called Be Real? I'm sorry, just to look down in this general direction. I just learned about this in the last couple of weeks. Be Real is an app, kind of, it's kind of considers itself the more morally conscious app compared to, like, Instagram, where there's filters, and you're just putting on your glossy life. Be Real is, uh, I I, I encountered it when I was having this really nice conversation with my daughter, and she goes, oh, no. I'm like, what? Like, house on fire. She goes, no, I miss my Be Real. I'm like, what's Be Real? She says, well, I get, like, alerts, and when I get an alert from my Be Real app, then I need to take a picture of whatever I'm doing in that moment. Turns out it's not just a selfie, but it has this weird, almost creepy ability to take a picture of themselves, but also of you across from the camera at the same time. I don't know how that works. Sounds like a, a liability waiting to happen. But anyways, <laughs> right? And there's no filters. And you are, um, you have what, like two minutes? Is that about right? They're all looking at me like, oh, cranky old man moment. And it is. This is what this is right here, right? So I got on it because my daughter asked me to with one rule that says I can't post any comments on her Be Real, right? But she's like, you should try it. So I've been trying it. And it is horrible. Here's what's going on. I mean, maybe it started from like a little good place, like Instagram is all about glossy and fake. Let's be, let's be real. So I know, here's what we'll do. We'll send out a text message to everyone on the planet, disrupting whatever real moment they're having so they can post and authenticate their realness to people they don't know. That's real, Right? <laughs> And we're going to just, by the same way of algorithms, in order to draw your data, uh, manage your behavior, so that one day we can sell Be Real to Meta. That's real. Hmm? Do I speaketh trutheth? Yes. Yes. In the words of Pastor Randy, can I get an amen? Amen. Ah, Arms folded down here. That's okay. That's okay. (laughs) I'm just saying, when the Proverbs call us to life... There is a qualitative nature to it. Does it also speak to eternity beyond life? Kind of. We know the whole scriptural narrative does. But in the words of Derek Kidner, he would say, we as believers, we know the whole picture of the story. But in Proverbs, the map doesn't quite show it. But it's still an awesome map that shows us the qualitative nature of the good life. That's number one. Here's number two. The Proverbs provoke regret. Now, I, I want to, um, if I could change the slide, if I could do over the slide, I have a regret about my, my word choice on this point about regret, which is that the, the Proverbs provoke futuristic regret. In other words, the Proverbs is a collection of wisdom and experience from heaven to help save you from being an idiot, not to shame you for having been one. Does that make sense? I'm saying that kind of crassly, but it's all futuristic. It's like, don't go by the seductor's window. Don't do it. It wasn't like, oh, you did it, you idiot, you idiot. No, no, it's like, hey, I want to save you a lot of pain. And so there is a provocation of what I would actually say, maybe a preemptive kind of of, of future regret. Now, regret is not all bad, interestingly. In a a new book by one of my becoming so favorite authors, Daniel Pink's written a lot of great books up there kind of with Malcolm Gladwell. It's called The Power of Regret. And here's his premise. His premise is we have... All by and large, we've grown up in an era, particularly in America, where under the influence of people like Norman Peel, the power of positivity, that somehow regret is a bad thing. We should, we should not acknowledge any regrets. We, we should just say regret is bad. And it's so bad that some are willing to even post that or tat that on their arm in ink like, like this gentleman did right? No regrets. This is kind of the carpe diem rally cry, right? Just go for it. Don't care. And yet, what happens if we actually live that way? We live in denial of hard things that have happened, or we dwell on the hard things, and they begin to have power over us. Daniel Pink did a survey. called it the World Regret Survey. Surveyed People from 105 different countries and 16,000 different survey data points at the time of the publishing. It's more now because it's still active. You You can look it up. And here's what he's done. He has distilled all of that data into four categories of regret. So types of regret, he said, number one, foundation regrets. What is that? Well, he said, it kind of sounds like this. If only I'd dot, dot, dot. And a foundation regret is, if only I'd done the work. And so he gives an example of a 45-year-old woman from Ireland who says this. She says that uh, I didn't look after myself when I was younger. I drank and smoked too much and slept too, with too many guys. That was her regret. Others would say, I regret not having applied myself more at this sport, at this discipline, in my college years, etc." It is a foundational, I wish I was working from a, from a better springboard in life. That's a foundational regret. Here's the second one. Boldness. Boldness sounds like this. If only I'd taken the risk. If only I had started the company. If only I had, you know, proverbially jumped out of the airplane. If only I had gone for it. And he tells a story of one man that wrote in and he said, when I was a young man and single, I was on a, on a train in Europe and I met this young woman and for hours we talked and there was so much chemistry and so, so much connection, but then she got to her stop and the train was there and I had to make a choice, keep going or get off the train and see where this would leave. And here's what he wrote as his regret. I never saw her again and I've always wished I'd stepped off that train. That would be a boldness, regret. Here's the third one. The third one is simply moral. And moral sounds like this. If only I'd done the right thing. And there's plenty of examples. Daniel Pink says, uh, reading all of these and going through the thousands of data is a little bit like watching a Ten Commandments uh, video uh, training video. <laughs> it's just like, here's all the wrong things to do in life. But it sounds like this. Here is a young Kansas, or now a 50-year-old, still young, still young Kansas woman, <laughs> saying, I wish that when I was on the school bus in elementary school, I would have had the courage to be nice to the scared little girl Who got picked on, and no one, including me, let her sit with them. I lost my integrity, and it haunts me in the middle of the night and still makes me cry. Here she is at the age of 50, thinking back, let's say, 38 or so years back to a moment that was a moral regret. The last one again, all 16,000 data points coming down into these four categories is the regret called connection, which sounds like if only I'd reached out. And so many people talked about an unreconciled relationship that they hadn't pursued, and then that person passed. If only they had sought healing or connection or cared for in some way. And this young uh, daughter says, looking back when she was an adolescent, on a relationship with her mom, here's what she writes. I regret not being nicer to my mom. I took her for granted when I was younger, thinking I was much smarter than she was. Typical teenager. When I grew up, we argued. uh, We argued over politics, both of us passionate about our viewpoints. Now that she is gone, I miss her desperately. So much but it takes my breath away sometimes. 16,000 people living still today in the present from something so deeply regretful in their past. And Pink's whole point is, we can either choose to dismiss this and deny it and when we do that, they actually have power over us. Or we can dwell in it, and that's with the same kind of power. We live from a place of shame. Or he says, we can enlist it. And for those that are willing to lean in and name their regrets and own their regrets, then actually that's where the healing can occur. And from that, we can actually live a wiser kind of life, and it's from that that we can actually experience healing and growth and make better decisions. And the research shows on and on, we make better decisions, we experience more meaning in our life, et cetera, et cetera, if we're willing to acknowledge the regrets in our life. Now, here's what's fascinating for me, however. So we've been looking at the book of Proverbs, Proverbs, which speaks about this kind of qualitative life of moral and spiritual and well-being and relationships of all the different ways that it's calling us to choose the right journey. Now, Daniel Pink, he literally says that from these regrets, they can actually point to what he calls the good life. We're all looking for this good life. What were we talking about just a little bit earlier? You know, your best life, the qualitative life that the the, uh, scriptures and Proverbs are pointing to? Here's what he says. That when you're living from a foundational regret, what you're really striving for and wanting is stability. A foundation that is secure. Do you think the Proverbs is speaking towards that as we've been going along? Absolutely. For those that are experiencing Boldness regrets, if only they'd taken the risk. What Daniel Pink says, what we're really striving for in our lives is growth. What's another name or word for risk, by the way? It's faith. Does the proverb speak to us making the the wise, but sometimes the difficult, but growth-bearing decisions? Absolutely. For those that are kind of suffering from a sense of moral regret, if only I'd done the, the right thing, what we really aspire towards, he says, is goodness. And for those living in regret of connection, if only I'd reached out, ultimately what we most long for is love. I love it when in modern times, totally stout researchers with no religious like, agenda at all, cull all the data down, and without even knowing it, they're like, Yeah, Proverbs knew what it was talking about. <laughs> Isn't that cool? This is the path, this is the journey that we're called to in a world that is shaking and restless. What do the scriptures call us to? In the words of St. Augustine, that we are restless until we find rest in you, O oh God. That's what we're called to through all of the path of decisions of growth and goodness and to love. Now, what really happens, though, with that regret is that the Proverbs maybe hopefully spare us some regrets, but we still have them, don't we? So the Proverbs don't explicitly say, but they point us to, Well, let me tell you what they don't point us to, because I think this is really poignant in our culture today. The Proverbs do not point us to karma. I don't know if any of you have been thinking about that as you're reading. It's like, okay, it's like, I come to the crossroads, do this or don't do that. Live or die, right? Uh, Like all of this, like how is that different than karma? Well, karma is this. Karma is essentially, it is a It is an Eastern thought that says there is a cosmic energy that's always going to right the scale, that is always going to bring things into balance and fairness. And in other words, if you do something bad, the universe is going to come after you. That's essentially what karma says. That is not what Proverbs is pointing to. That is not what the narrative of the scriptures is saying. In fact... This is one of those little moments that distinguishes followers of Jesus from just about any other religious system or grid. Because whether it is the five pillars of Islam, whether it is the eightfold path of enlightenment, whether it is Judaism or Christianity, run amok. But that's going to ultimately say it is all about you making the right choice to get to the right place. It is all upon you. You, in one way or another, it's going to all be about fairness and about the universe, uh, universe writing itself and coming after you. But what is the message of Jesus and the gospel? It's not that the universe is out to get you. It's that the God of the universe comes to you in love. What's the difference between? A follower of Jesus and any other religious code, they can have karma. I choose grace. I choose grace. Grace is the most unfair thing in all of existence because you don't get what you deserve. And what you do get, you didn't deserve at all. In the midst of all your regrets... All the past things, what the Proverbs point us to, it's like, hey, don't miss this, it's gonna be painful, there are consequences, God is a God of justice, like all of that, and yet, he's gonna upend it, he's gonna turn it all upside down, he's gonna scandalize you with the most unfair thing in the world, which is grace. Bono, the uh, lead singer of U2, was in a conversation that actually got formed into a book with a guy named Mitchka Asayas, about the difference between karma and grace. And I, I think he's on to something here. It gets a little fuzzy in Bono speak. But I just want to unpack this here f- for a moment. Here in conversation, Bono says, you know, the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. And Mishka Asayas is like, uh, I haven't heard you talk about that. And so Bono expounds and he says, well, I really believe we've moved out of the realm of karma into one of grace, And Esaias is like, that doesn't really clear it up for me, Bono. And Bono goes, okay. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm actually sure of it. And yes, Along comes this idea called grace, to upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. And Mishka Asias is like, well, say more about that. And Bono's like, hey, that's uh, between me and God, but I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep, doo-doo. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am, and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. In other words, hey, I'm curious for you, like, which one of these has a hold on you? Which one of you, which one of these for you is just like, man, I'm partly dead inside because I didn't take the risk. I'm partly dead inside because I blew it. And if you knew my rap sheet, I'm dead inside because I don't know how to say sorry to someone who's passed. I'm dead inside because I wasn't given the foundation or I didn't take advantage of the one that I had. And God wants for you the life that is truly life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Like, if you want to experience that life, if you want to live from the heart of the Father, will come through me. And here's the beautiful news. The whole world will say, if you want this, you got to get karma right. There's this big wall right here. It says, get it all right, so you can experience all these things. The universe is out to get you. The message of Jesus is that he got it all right. And that God comes to you in love. And it's grace that becomes the portal into the stability, the growth, the goodness, and the love. So unfair. So unfair. We don't deserve it. We should be scandalized by it. We should be almost mad about it. But all we need to do is receive it. I don't have to live anymore from the past mistakes in this life and in the life to come. There are hints and foreshadowings of eternity even in the book of Proverbs. And it says this, when calamity comes, you could also say when regret happens. The wicked are brought down, but even in death, the righteous, the right relationships, the righteous seek refuge in God, even in death. In other words, our eternity is secure. The life that is truly life is one that can happen here by the grace of God and beyond when we are fully in the presence of God, and he is our refuge. He is our grace giver up or as we've said before, God comes to you in love and he says, "Your mess, it's mine. Your regrets are done. And all we have to do is receive it by his life, by his death, by his resurrection and one day he'll return and make all regrets gone. So holy Spirit, we just pray in this moment. we ask for your for your grace to come into these places that are tender for us, where they're unsettling in us, where there's still some shaking and some rattling. Holy Spirit, as we continue to to sing together, we ask, would you just, would we sense your your nearness and your presence? Would you, like a bomb, just be applied to some of these wounds that maybe we've been carrying for 38 years? And would you set us free to a life that can only truly be lived in you by grace? So maybe just, maybe we just need to say two words here in this moment, which is I receive. You don't earn. You can't write all the balances and all all that stuff. This is totally unfair. You're just gonna receive the blessed unfairness of God, and that he gave his life up for you. And if you just wanna say and surrender, just say, I receive. Just say it now, I receive. I receive your grace. I receive your love. I receive your hope. I receive your peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we say amen. If you are able, please stand, and let's continue in song.